0: So please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can, and often does, happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. Hello,
1: hello, hello. Welcome to Fantastic Fiction at KGB. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, I'm Ellen Datlow, and this is Matthew Kressel, who's taking pictures. And uh, we've been co-hosting it for quite a while now. Um, the, this is a series that's been going on since the late 90s, right? We, we, yes. we always I, I can never remember, but yeah. But anyway, we are delighted to keep doing it. And um, one thing we do, we, we get the bar. We do not pay for the, the bar. The only thing they expect is that we drink, that you buy a drink if you can. It um, doesn't have to be alcohol, but something stay hydrated and tip the bartenders well and uh we'll keep going forever we hope and also we have green light books is selling copies of both our readers <laughs> books please welcome ben and um buy please buy the buy books the, the thing is you know we didn't have a bookseller for about a year and a half because the last one dropped out because not enough people were buying books so, you know, if you want if for anyone who wants, you know, we want uh, for our readers and for the audience, we'd love to sell more books for them. So, just be aware of that that we would love to have you buy a book here and have the author sign for you. But anyway, have I forgotten something? No. no. All right. <laughs> not yet. Ah, well. Our mailing list. We have a mailing list, but these people all know that. All right. I think oh, right. but anyway, if you want, if you're not on the mailing list, you can get on the mailing list. Just go to the website uh, Fantastic Fiction at KGB, and sign up. And the only thing we send you are, um, if we send you twice a month, we send you the information about this reading, nothing else. We do not spam you, okay? And if you're lucky, we won't have people singing while we're reading. Um, <clears throat> uh, over the next few months, we have some interesting readers coming up. May 15th, we have Simon Strances and Kaya Shanti Wilson. June 19th, we have Chuck Wendig and Keith R.A. DeCandido. Yes. July 17th, Cadwell Turnbull and Theodore Goss. August 21st, Lara, Lara Elena, Elena Donnelly and Paul Whitcover. September 18th, <coughs> Sarah Beth Durst and Sarah Pinsker. Come on, come on, yeah. October 16th, Nicole Kerner Stace, Stace, Stace and Barbara Krasnoff. Uh, November 20th, Dave Mack, David Mack, and we're not gonna, we may have some, we have someone else we think, but we're not gonna, it's not for sure yet. So TK. And December 18th, Nathan Ballingren and Paul Tremblay. So that's what's coming up. And meantime, tonight we have some very special people. We have Dale Bailey. Who is the author of eight books, including In the Nightwood, which he's gonna be reading from, <coughs> excuse me, The End of the End of Everything, which is a collection, and the Subterranean Season. Uh oh, can I have my water McClendon? Yeah. <coughs> Thanks. His story Death and Suffrage was adapted for Showtime's Masters of Horror, a television series. Mm-hmm. Actually it was pretty good. I saw it I was it's not bad if you can find it. <laughs> no, really. <coughs> I, mean, <coughs> I mean, the show. I mean, the show. No, you know, usually I like, screw things up, but it wasn't bad, right?
2: No. Um,
1: well. You didn't like it? <laughs> it was okay. All right. His short fiction has won the Shirley Jackson Award and the International Horror Guild Award, and it has been nominated for the Nebula Award and the Bram Stoker Award. Please welcome Dale Bailey. <laughs>
2: Uh, there you go can y'all hear me uh, thanks to uh, Alan and Matt for allowing me to read um, I was talking last night to a friend who I was asking how I should pitch this book you remember that and she said, uh, you need to pitch it as kind of what the experience of reading the book is. And, and so uh, the experience of reading the book, it's kind of a haunted house story. Uh, a haunted house surrounded by a haunted wood. And it's about a young couple in their 30s, it seems young to me, uh, who has lost a child. And they move into the house and they begin to see apparitions of the child. Um, among other things so I'm going to read you a section from the middle of the book which I guess doesn't require much more setup than that but uh, it's about when the former father the father who has experienced this loss walks into the woods which are perhaps haunted and what he encounters there Um, so I think that's all you need So we'll see. The Showtime thing, the, uh, yeah. It it was good when it came out, but it didn't age well. So maybe this will age better. (laughs) So it starts this way. Charles stopped just the other side of the gate at the verge of the wood, the wall at his back. It was full morning by then and cool underneath the trees, sunlight here and there glimmered through chinks in the leafy canopy, imparting to the air a crepuscular glow. Everything smelled of rain, damp, fresh, newly awake, the low, ferny undergrowth in the soft earth beneath his feet, the moss-enveloped boulders that jutted from the ground like the broken teeth of buried giants. Charles exhaled, his, bur- his burden sloughed away. He felt born anew, yet ungrieved by the world outside the wood. Even the throb in his head retreated. Putting the sun at his back, he struck off through the forest along a narrow trail, the wall on his right hand, and on his left, the enormous trees rising on a slow grade through dips and folds in the rocky terrain. Harris was right. The wood quieted the mind. There was no threat here, no summons or command from a dream that was only a dream and not, as Aaron too had told herself, a portent. This was his last conscious thought before the wood gathered him in and there was only stillness in his unstill mind. The pleasant ache in his muscles as he scrambled over the occasional knob of upthrust stone or root, the animal vitality of bone, breath, and sinew, the absolute and eternal present, free of past guilt and future anguish. And then something, he wasn't sure what, startled him from reverie, a a rustle of leaves or a movement at the corner of his eye. Charles paused to catch his breath, and take stock of his surroundings. The path here took him deeper into the wood, skirting a dense coppice of thorny underbrush to climb over a small ridge. This was probably his favorite stretch of the hike. For while glimpses of the wall remained visible through gaps in the trees, it was easy to pretend that he had wandered astray from the straight path, deep into virgin forest entirely apart from the complications that elsewhere beleaguered him. Something stirred in the leaves farther up the ridge, and this time Charles did catch a flash of movement. He he was sure of it. He turned his head slowly, searching it out. The trees in their multitudes climbed the heavens, titanic columns in the lingering ground mist, somewhere a bird called, and then... He felt his heart seize up. There it was, staring back at him from a tangle of undergrowth, a stone's throw up the ridge, a face, or something like a face. And what he was reminded of was his childhood, plucking in the nightwood down from its shelf and thereby changing the course of his life or setting it in motion as could only happen in a story. What he was reminded of was opening that book to its elaborate frontispiece, the seemingly random intersection of leaf and bough from which peered a dozen sly faces. But no, there was no one and nothing. The face, had there been a face, was gone. He'd imagined it. He stepped off the path all the same. He stepped off the path despite the prohibitions of a thousand tales. Broken, everyone, as such prohibitions must be. Subject, like us all, to necessity or fate. The grim logic of the stories everywhere and always unfolding. This door you must not open. This fruit you shall not taste. Do not step off the path. There are wolves. Charles stepped off the path. He thought he'd seen, yes, there, the face. Or one so alike it, it might have been the same, peering down at him from higher up the ridge, half hidden in the low crotch of a huge oak that had thrown up branching trunks, massive with age and overgrown with fairy ladders. And then there, a gleam from the dark beneath a granite outcropping, some chance beam of sunlight setting a fire a sprinkle of quartz. Or maybe it was eyes. They blinked and disappeared, only to open up a noose still farther up the slope, a knowing glitter, a cunning little face like a cat's, and yet unlike it, too, inspecting him from the undergrowth behind a deadfall tree. It was gone again in the same breath, stealthy in the branches, yes, and there, another one withdrawing, and there, and there, a step, and then another, and yet another still, climbing. Is someone there? As if in answer, a breeze swirled through the trees, voices whispering woodland tidings that he could not quite decipher. And quiet laughter, too, knocking and capricious, but not unkind, or not entirely so. Charles paused, looking back. There lay the path almost out of sight now, winding down the other side of the ridge to resume its circuit of the wall, and here another way and a choice between them. I should steer clear of the wood if I were you, Dr. Kolbeck had said. People get lost. Yet those faces drew him on, the imperative of shadow and mystery, the inviting dim under the trees, how could he get lost if he stayed to the spine of the ridge as he ascended? It would be a matter only of following the same spine's descent as he returned. He, he would not go far. There was another ripple of laughter that was not laughter, but only wind and another sly goblin face, another chance intersection of light and shadow, scrutinizing him from the dark interior of a crack that sundered the, ba- the vast bowl of an ancient oak, Miss bearded and stern he would not go far he climbed the ridge through green dappled light lured on by faces that could not be faces and voices in the wind that could not be voices the sun shifted its angle as it slanted down its rays through the canopy and then the foliage was just foliage he had surely imagined them those shrewd little imps There was only the wood itself and that was enough sufficient to him why had he ever been afraid? Bracken thrashed as a deer. Was it a stag? Leapt away? He watched, the maze, its white tail flashing in the murk. High on the ridge now, he found a grove of young birch, arrow straight against the sky. He looked out from a gap among them. The sight commanded a view of the folded landscape below. The wood stretched as far as he could see. Hollow house was gone, or hidden. The wall, too. There were no walls here. Only the primeval forest, trees and rocks, and the eternal return of newborn green piercing the damp ferment of the old years' leavings. Charles sighed. He was weary with walking. Surely it wouldn't hurt to sit down and rest for a few minutes. Leaving the straight path, he hardly thought about it. He might have been summoned there. Charles slipped down through a ring of ancient yews, Like a child in an enchanted forest from some half-forgotten tale, he emerged into a beautiful glade of green grass where stood a lone oak, regal, old, beyond reckoning. That sense of contentment of being anchored in the eternal present once again suffused him. He'd sit here then, he told himself, though he would later wonder whether he'd chosen the spot or whether it had been awaiting him all along his fate destiny and so as necessity would have it he lowered himself to the earth embowered in a thickly moss grown crevice between two gnarled roots he leaned against the trunk of the oak he closed his eyes he might have fallen into a daydream or a doze there and he would later wonder about that too but then suddenly he was awake Charles sat up Full sunlight flooded the clearing, but the darkness under the tree had deepened, and it was cold, unseasonably cold. When had it gotten so cold? And where were the birds? Why this silence, so fathomless and deep that he could hear the pulse of his heart, he swallowed? Dragged in a breath, blew out a cloud of fog, and then a curtain parted in the air, and he sensed From a world outside this world, or from one that interpenetrated it, some remote, numinous sentience, vigilant and green, turned its attention upon him. A cloaked figure loomed over him, tall and lean. Had it been there all along, or had it gathered substance from the dark, spinning itself into being out of the emerald shadows? under the trees. Charles lifted his gaze past the battered leather boots planted in the moss-grown soil before him and past a short leather tunic sewn with interleaved steel scales, much rusted to the thing's face. Its skin of autumnal leaves close-woven, its hooked nose and its cheeks like upturned blades, its great rack of horns outspread. A black imperative burned in its merciless yellow eyes. Some terrible command, and and though it did not speak, its voice was thin and hateful in his head. Bring her to me. Charles three times denied it. No, never. I will not, unsure of what he was denying. Metal rang as the creature unsheathed its sword. The the blade hung above Charles, silver flashing in the gloom. The thing gripped tighter the hilt, and everything balanced on a heartbeat. The killing blow descended in a blue arc. Just as it cleaved his neck, there was no pain yet. Only the kiss of cold steel unseeming his flesh Just then a soft breeze flew up from nowhere, and Charles opened his eyes, or he didn't open them. He woke up, or he had never been asleep, and the dark creature under the tree had never been there at all, or it had been, and the wind had shredded it into rags and blown them all away. Charles gasped and touched his neck, and the clearing was sun-splashed, and the green shade under the tree was pleasant and cool. Everything was as it had been, only those words bring her to me, lingering. And then another breath of wind snatched them out of the air and carried them off into the wood as well. His heart slowed, the blood pounding at his temples faded to silence. A lone bird called, and then another, and then the air filled up with the woodland chorus of insects and birds and the wind and the grass and the trees muttering among themselves. Choss pushed to his feet. He gazed up into the grandfatherly oak where it aspired to the heavens. The sun was visible in flashes through interstices in the leaves. The morning restored itself. That sense of contentment once again enfolded him. So it might have remained, had he not looked down. But it happened that he did, and saw a boot print in the moss. The day darkened. The sun was bright, the breeze was gentle, birds still quiet in the morning, yet the day darkened. He'd imagined it, of course, like the vulpine little faces staring out at him from the leaves in the black place. and places in hollow trees and the overgrown deadfalls in the wood, like the terrible king, the creature, the thing. Imagination, nothing more. Yet Charles knelt all the same, ran one hand across the moss, thinking that it must be the print of his own hiking boot, or that it was some chance pattern in the growth, or that it was not there at all, that he'd imagined it. And then he felt there was, was something there, Something metal, like a coin, or he pushed aside a tussock of grass, picked the thing up, stumbled out from beneath the shadow of the tree to see it in the light. He laughed without mirth or joy, a single gout of hysteria, really, for what he held was a thin scale of steel, about the size of a 50-cent piece, rusty, but finely worked into the shape of an oak leaf. The Armour the thing's armor he wheeled around anxious to be free of the wood trying to discover where he'd entered the clearing ewes he thought he'd come to the ewes but ewes soared up on every side Charles pocketed the scale disquieted he scanned the trees once again more than ever he felt like a child in a tale as though the birds had eaten up the trail of breadcrumbs he'd scattered at his back to find the way home he thought of the lean figure of the horned king towering over him, the kiss of the blade upon his neck. Anxiety throbbed in his chest. The grandfather oak now seemed malign, as if it might at any moment reach down, snatch him up, and shove him into some knothole mouth, sealing itself up behind him. The once inviting clearing seemed suddenly exposed. People get lost, Mr. Hayden. The childhood axiom came back to him. When lost, stay where you are and await rescue. Instead, Charles picked a direction at random and trudged into the woods. Enormous trees loomed over him, roots cracked stone and furrowed earth. A breeze whispered in the leaves. He thought of those impish impish faces. "'Mocking, half unkind, as they lured him deeper into the wood, "'he dammed back a rising tide of panic. "'It was morning, yet he would find his way. "'After a time, five minutes or so, he reckoned, "'the ground began to rise ahead of him. "'Relief surged through him. "'Surely this was the slope he descended, he told himself, "'though a doubting inner voice pointed out "'that he might have taken the wrong angle through the trees, "'that he might be climbing toward the crest "'of an altogether different ridge, or indeed no ridge at all, only a small fold in the land. After all, the descent to the clearing hadn't taken him nearly this long, had it? But he kept climbing. And when at last the ground leveled out again, he found himself once more in a grove of silvery birch. They seemed to bend aside before him. Willowy as young dryads, laving their hair in the wind. He looked out through a gap among the trees, below the wood stretched as far as he could see. He'd stood in this place before, he was sure of it, and the spine of the ridge seemed to descend gradually southward on his right, just as he remembered. He soon confirmed the observation, this must be the way, he thought with growing confidence. And yes, 15 minutes later, he stumbled across the path, or a path, anyway, one that looked familiar. He followed it down the ridge, And at last, the wall appeared among the trees. Soon after, he found a fallen gate, stepped over it into the tunnel beyond, and ducked in and underneath the wall, the passage bound at either end by an archway of light. He emerged on the other side into lambent late morning air, with the meadow all peaceful before him, and hollow house below. So, I'll stop there. Thank you. Uh, as I was reading that about halfway through, I thought, damn, you describe a lot of trees. <laughs> and I thought, man, they must be getting sick of trees. So, uh, there you go, thank you. and. Uh, I'm done. Thank you. Yeah, that's a scary board guy.
1: So we're gonna take a break. in the meantime you can buy a book, have a drink, and we'll be back back two
3: minutes. Good evening and welcome back. We're gonna get we're gonna get started with our next reader. Um, so I usually like open the night and I have my whole spiel ready, but Ellen stole it from me because she she opened. So now I don't know what to say. I'm standing up here. I'm all confused. What did you do, Ellen? What did you do? Um, yes. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Amy. You're the only one out there who still loves me. Uh, we have. Thank you. We have Greenlight Bookstore. So so Greenlight has been selling books for us for a few months. And uh, as Ellen said, uh, we haven't had a bookseller for like a year and a half or more. And we just, we want to keep them coming back. So please, 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 if you can, please buy a book. We want them to coming back, not just to support our authors tonight, but our, all of our future authors. And uh, also, please, if you can, buy a drink, hard or soft. It supports the bar. You support the bar. You support... Reading series to keep us going for as long as possible. Um, we have a mailing list, kgbfantasticfiction.org. If you go to the website, you go up there, you put your name on the list. We just, we just, I, I don't know what else to say. I got nothing else to say. How are you guys doing? What's new? I'm not good at the small talk stuff.
1: So next month, they will bring next month yes, Ellen so will we'll bring, bring
3: the Ark Echoes. The Ark we'll
4: somehow, so um, of the Covenant.
1: The,
3: the right. Ark of the Covenant is a little too heavy to bring up the
1: <laughs> Unless someone
3: wants to help us. Yeah,
1: right.
3: Okay. Arkady Martine is a speculative fiction writer and, as Dr. Anna Linden Weller, a historian of the Byzantine Empire and a city planner. Arkady grew up in New York City and after some time in Turkey, Canada, Sweden, she lives in Baltimore with her wife, the author Vivian Shaw. Her debut novel, A Memory Called Empire, for sale in the back, uh, has received starred reviews from Kirkus Publishers Weekly and Library Journal and was named a Library Journal Debut of the Month, listed on Publishers Weekly's top 10 spring debuts, it has been featured on NPR's On the Record and AM860 Philadelphia's Fictional Frontiers. Find her at www.rcadimartine.net or on Twitter at rkdmartine. Here she is. Thank you.
4: Hi. I, apparently I sent you the bio that my publicist likes. Now I feel all embarrassed. <laughs> I should should have edited it, yeah, it's all, it's all right. right. <laughs> so um, I'm going to read from the novel as mentioned. Uh, this is a memory called Empire, which is a space opera uh, involving a whole lot of politics, a whole lot of poetry, and a bunch of sort of assimilation um, and the difficulties thereof. So I'm going to read from the middle of the book um, to set the stage. Our protagonist, Mahit Desmar, has come from LaSalle Station, which is a small mining station out on the borders of the universe, um, which is her home. And they are fiercely independent, and they have been trying to fend off the physical acquisition of their station by the large space empire in the vicinity, Texcalan, for quite some time. And have managed physically to hold them off, but emotionally, intellectually, culturally, not so much. Empire is dangerous. It gets into the groundwater. So Mahit has come to the capital of Texcalan to replace the former ambassador, who has been dead, probably murdered, definitely murdered. Um, And she is trying to figure out what is going on. And why he is dead, and what she can possibly do about it, and also possibly how to prevent Tixcalan from starting a war that will annex her station. Also, of note, she is supposed to have the, a copy of her predecessor, the dead ambassador, inside her head, but currently he is malfunctioning. His name is Iskander, and he will not be appearing in this story at the moment. So, I'm going to read from a section that starts with an imperial poetry contest. Somewhere in the middle of the second oration, an acrostic ode that simultaneously spelled out the name of the poet's hypothetical lost beloved via the opening letters of each line, and told a heart-wrenching story of his self-sacrifice to save his shipmates from a vacuum breach, Mahit had the sudden realization that she was standing in the tex court, hearing a tex poetry contest, while holding an alcoholic drink, and accompanied by a witty tex friend. Everything she had ever wanted when she was 15. Right here. She thought it probably should have made her feel happy instead of abruptly unreal, disconnected, depersonalized, like she was happening to somebody else. The orations were good. Some of them were better than good driving rhythms over clever internal rhyme or an orator whose delivery of that particular Texcalani style of half-sung, half-spoken, rapid-fire chant was exceptionally fluid. Exquisite imagery washed over Mahit in waves and she felt nothing. Nothing aside from wishing that she could have copies of every poem written down, confined to glyphs that she could read on her own, someplace quiet and silent and still. If she could just read the poems, speak them in her own voice, try out the rhythms and the cadences, find how they moved on her tongue. Surely she'd feel the power of them. She always had before. She drank from her glass. Three seagrass had brought her some spirit distilled from a grain she didn't know. It was the pale gold color of all the swarming lights and burned going down her throat. Nine Maze's oration when it came was an epigram Three Secrets had promised it would be. He'd hardly begun, only took his place, cleared his throat, and recited a three-line stanza. Every Skyport harbour overflows. Citizens carry armfuls of imported flowers. These things are ceaseless. Star charts. Disembarkments. When he hesitated just long enough to signal a shift, a caesura, Mahit felt the entire room catch on his held breath. No matter how little she had liked him, she saw why he was the toast of the court's literati. What charisma he had was amplified the instant he spoke in verse. It was what he was made for. On Selle, he would have been a candidate for an imago line of poets, if LaSalle had had such a thing. The curl of unborn petals holds a hollowness, said Nine Mays. Then he sat down again. There was no release of tension. The sense of unease remained, floating like a miasma. The next orator came forward in the midst of the awkward silence, the scrape of her shoes on the floor audible. She fumbled the first line of her own composition and had to begin again. Mahit turned to Three Seagrass, questioning. Politics, murmured Three Seagrass. That was a critique. In several ways. I really thought 30 Larkspur had nine maids under his thumb, but people can be so surprising. I think it was most critical of eight antidote maids said. The imperial heir, the child. Unborn petals. Well, yes, Three Seagrass said, her eyebrows knit together. But 30 Larkspur's the heir who's most responsible for increasing importation of in-empire goods to the city. It's why he's got money. He's bringing it in from the Western Arc systems. That's where his family is from, and there's that suggestion of corruption. For every citizen carrying a flower, every import being somehow poisoned, as if thirty Larkspur's wealth is as bad as importing from objects from outside Texcalon entirely. Politics by means of literary analysis. Were there aptitudes that tested for that? Or was it something that a Tixkala would learn through intense exposure? Mahit could imagine Three Seagrass as a child deciphering the political messages in the buildings with her school peers at lunch. It wasn't very difficult to picture at all. Critical of everyone sin- except Judiciary Minister Eight Loop, then, she said. She only survives pillory by overt omission, Three Seagrass said. I think it's deeper than what, just which air is best, Mahit. Why else would Nine Mays make such a dangerous choice in topics? Mahit thought about the fundamental assumption of takes Colombian society, that collapse between world and empire and city, and how if there was such a collapse, importation was uneasy, foreign was dangerous, even if that importation was just from a distant part of the empire. And barbarians like herself oughtn't be able to conceptualize why a poem about the perilous corruption of some other planet's flowers might be, in fact, designed to make a slim nervous. But if a system were no longer foreign, if the world was large enough, the empire large enough, to encompass and subsume all that was barbaric about that world, well, it wasn't barbaric anymore. It wasn't threatening anymore if Nine Mays was pointing out the threat of importation he was calling for, or at least suggesting, that Texcalan act to normalize that threat. To civilize it, as Texcalan had always civilized, had always made something Texcalanly, with force. Force, like a war. Nine Mays wasn't really talking to 30 Larkspur, Nine Mays was showing up whatever political factions were preparing for war, all of those troop movements one Lightning with his legions and his shouting partisans, but also the Emperor's Sixth Direction setting the fleet into the kind of readiness that had marked his early reign when he'd been a star conquering Emperor himself. Where are One Lightning's supporters tonight, Three Seagrass? she asked. Mm-hmm. They're who that poem was for, I think. For anyone who is interested in a stronger, more centralized, less importation focused Tixcala. He's a populist, and this is court, it's not fashionable. But I'm sure... Oh, Three Seagrass said. Oh, well, we were looking for the war. A war very soon, Mahit said, uneasily thrilled with discovery. An annexation. A conquest war. For the purposes of making places less foreign. Three Seagrass reached over and plucked Mahit's glass of alcohol out of her hand, took a large sip, and returned it. We haven't had an annexation war since before I was born. I know, said Mahit. We do have history on the stations. We were enjoying Texcalan being a quiescent neighbouring predator. You make us sound like a mindless animal. Not mindless, Mahit said. It was as close as she could bring herself to an apology. Never that, but an animal. You do devour, isn't that what we're talking about? A war of annexation. It's not... Devour would be if we were xenophobes or genocides if we didn't bring new territories into the empire into the world shift the pronunciation of the verb and Three Seagrass could have been saying if we didn't make new territories real but Mahit knew what she meant all the ways that being part of Texcalan gave a planet or a station prosperity economic, cultural take a Texcalanly name, be a citizen speak poetry Let's not argue, Three Seagrass, she said. I don't want to. Three Seagrass pressed her lips together. We're going to argue. I want to understand what you think. It's my job. But we can argue later. The Emperor is going to announce the contest winner soon. Look. The orations were finished. Mahit had missed the last few entries entirely. None of them had disturbed the room the way Nine Mays had. Now the Emperor stood up. His Ezra Kalitzlim flanking him? Had they conferred, chosen a winner together? She doubted they could, co- could so quickly come to a conclusion. Not when the group of them included 30 Larkspur, two Tixel and Litzlim Mahit hadn't ever met, and 19 ads resplendent still all in white. Quite nearly a relief to look at in all of the gleaming lights. The emperor gestured, pointing out a poet who had made absolutely no impression on Mahit. She looked as surprised by her honour as the rest of the crowd did, which hesitated on the verge of the expected acclamatory cheering as if they weren't certain of what had just happened either. Who is that? May whispered to Three Seagrass. Fourteen Spire. Three Seagrass said, "She's exquisitely dull in her basic competence, and she's always has been. She's never won anything before." Nine Maze's face was impassive. Mahit couldn't tell if he was pleased to be so obviously snubbed or angry about it, whether he'd meant to ruin the evening so firmly. Fourteenth Spire prostrated herself before the Emperor and received a blown glass flower as her prize. Got up again. The assembled courtiers managed to shout her name, and Mahit joined in. It would have been stranger not to. Are you going to finish that drink? asked Three Seagrass when the noise had died away. Yes. Why? "'cause I am going to have to talk about Fourteen Spires' use of assonance "'for the rest of the evening, and you're going to have to listen, "'and we should both be slightly more inebriated.' "'Oh,' said Mahit, "'when you put it like that.' "'Somewhere in the middle of her third glass of the pale spirits "'that Three Seagrass kept bringing her, Three Seagrass herself was drinking something milky white "'that she called a hachtolya, "'which Mahit was convinced meant spoilt burst.' Root, at least from her understanding of the roots of the unfamiliar word, and couldn't quite figure out why it was in any way desirable to consume, let alone consume multiple instances of. Mahit found herself standing on the edge of a circle of Teclan watching them have what she could only describe as not a poetry contest, but a battle of wits conducted entirely in extemporaneous verse. It had begun as a sort of game. One of Three Seagrass's evanescently clever friends took up the last line of 14 Spire's dull and prize winning poem and said, let's play, shall we? And proceeded to use that last line as her first one, composing a quatrain that shifted the rhythm from the standard 15-syllable political verse to something that was absolutely stuffed full of dactyls. And then she'd pointed her chin at another one of Three Seagriffs' friends in challenge, and he took her last line and apparently came up with a perfectly acceptable quatrain of his own with no preparatory time. Now, he caught a few of his references. He was imitating the style of a poet she'd read once named Thirteen Penknife who used the same vowel sound pattern repeated on either side of the caesura. Imitating Thirteen Penknife seemed to be the order of the day after that. Three Seagrass took a turn, and then another woman, and then a Texcan Leedslim of a gender Mahit didn't recognize, and then it was back to the initial challenger who changed the game again, adding another element. Now each quatrain had to start with the last line of the previous one, be in dactylic verse with a vowel repeated caesura, and be on the subject of repairs made to city infrastructure. Three Seagrass was annoyingly good at describing repairs to city infrastructure. She was lucid even through many glasses of a hajjtia, laughing, saying lines like, The grout seal around the reflecting pool, lapped smooth and clear white by the tongues of a thousand texcalonly feet, nevertheless phrase granular and impermanent, and will be spoken again, remade in the image of one department or another, clamoring. And Mahit knew two things. First, that if she wanted to take a turn at this game, all she needed to do was step forward into the circle and someone would challenge her, the same as any other them. And second, that she would fail at it completely. There was no way she could do this. She'd spent half her life studying Teixcalaanli literature and she was just barely good enough to follow this game, recognize a few of the reference. If she tried herself, she'd, oh, they wouldn't laugh. They'd be indulgent indulgent of the poor ignorant barbarian playing so hard at civilization and three seagrass wasn't paying the slightest bit of attention to her heat slipped back away from the circle of clever young people and made herself disappear into the great ballroom under the glittering starlit fan vaults and tried not to feel like she was going to cry there wasn't any point in crying over this If she wanted to weep, she should weep for Yaskander or for how much political trouble she was in, not over being unable to describe pool grout while referencing a centuries-old poem on departmental conflict, one department or another clamouring. She'd read that poem in one of her collections on the station and thought she'd understood it. She hadn't. The hall was still packed with inebriated courtiers. There seemed, if anything, to be more of them than before, a secondary tier of people who had come for the party now that the emperor and his oration contest had finished. Six Direction himself was nowhere to be seen, and Mahit was glad of that. Glad because he was hard to look at without wanting to go near. Glad because he'd been so fragile under all that power, and some part of her, which she assumed was mostly Iskander, wanted him to be able to rest and not waste time on entertaining this mess of shimmering Tikskalam the Islam. She got herself another drink, one more was really not going to make a difference at this point, and she figured out how to avoid any of the ones that tasted of either violets or milk-rotted flowers, and struck out bravely across the floor. Most people avoided her, or greeted her with the formality her office deserved, and that was absolutely fine. That was actually pleasant. She could do courtesy ritual even without Iskander's help, and she could be personable. These were all amongst her talents. These were the talents that she had been specifically selected for, possessed aptitude in, and no LaSalle Imago compatibility test ever looked for fluid improvisational verse. That was just a barbarian child's dream of a desire. She was wallowing, and also she was slightly drunk. And because both of these things were true, she was not at all expecting when a very, very tall person wearing a long dress made out of bias-cut pale grey-gold silk put her hand on Mahit's arm, and spun her around. The room kept spinning for just a moment after Mahit stopped, and she should probably be worried about that. The woman who had accosted her was not Teixcalaanli, not by features, and certainly not by dress. Her arms were bare, save for heavy silverwork cuffs, a bracelet on each wrist, and one more wide band high on the left arm, and she was wearing a type of makeup Mahit wasn't familiar with she covered all of her eyelids with red and pale gold creams, like a painting of clouds at sunset on some distant planet. Mahit bowed over her hands, and the other person did the same, awkwardly, with great unfamiliarity. "'You're the Selle ambassador,' she said brightly. "'Yes?' "'I'm Gourlay, the ambassador from Dava. Come have a drink with me.' "'A drink,' said Mahit, playing for time. She couldn't remember where Dava was.' It was one of the most newly annexed planets in Texthalemnly space, she was sure of that. But was it was the one which exported silk? Or the one which had a famous mathematical school? This was what an imago was for, to help you remember things you needed to know that you hadn't known you needed to know. <laughs> yes, Gerlith said. Do you drink? Do you have drinks on your station? Oh, Maheith thought. For fuck's sake. Yes, we have drinks, lots of them. What (laughs) kind do you like? I've been going through the bar. Local culture, you understand. You understand. Gurley's hand was back on Mahit's arm, and she felt a distant kind of disgusted pity for the other woman. She'd been sent here by her government, and her government was newly a protectorate of Texcalan, and she was alone, like Mahit was alone, but Mahit wasn't supposed to be alone, and being alone in Texcalan was like drowning in clear air. A person might try all the, the drinks at a bar and call it experiencing local culture. "'How long have you been here?' Maheep asked. The same phrase Three Seagrass had used in the ground car during her first minutes in the city. "'How long have you been inside the world?' Gurlaith shrugged. "'A few months. Now I'm not newest anymore. You are. You should come to our salon. Several of the ambassadors from Farther Systems get together every other week.' "'And do what?' Politics, said Gurley. When she smiled, she stopped looking affable and a little lost. She had a great many small teeth, and most of them were pointed. It wasn't a stationer's smile, but it wasn't Texcolumli either, and Mahit felt for one dizzying instant the width and breadth of the galaxy, how far a jump gate might take a person, how the people on the other side might be people, or might be something that looked like people, but weren't. That was how a Texcolumli's would think. She was getting very good at it, wasn't she? Send me an invitation, Mahit said. I'm sure the politics of Dava are of interest to the politics of Salle. Gurley's expression did not so much change as harden, the sharpness of her teeth sharper. Mahit wondered if it was the fashion on Dava to file them to points, or if it was an example of an endemic trait in an isolated population like the freefall mutants. More than you might imagine, Ambassador, Gurley said. Our Teixcalaanly provincial governor hardly ever comes to bother us, save to invite us to events like this one. Your station might take note. Mahit wasn't sure if that was a threat. Come to our salons, join our little group of ambassadors, and when Teixcalaan eats you too, you'll go down whole and unshoed. Or a genuine offer of sympathy. Either way, she was insulted. This woman was from Dava, and she still couldn't remember if it was significant for silk or for mathematics, and here she thought she could give Mahit advice. She'd had enough of advice for one night. When she smiled, she pulled her lips all the way back from her teeth into a grimace. We might, she said. I do hope you find a new drink to try, Ambassador Golaeth. Good night. The room whirled again when she spun on one heel, but she thought she was still walking in a straight line. She needed to get out of here before she met someone who could actually do her or her station harm. She needed to be alone. There were a multitude of doors out of the throne room of Palace Earth. Mahit picked one at random, slipped through, and vanished herself into the machinery of the Emperor's own stronghold. Most of palace earth was marble and gold, star inlay and dim lights, a perpetual state of near dawn, like the view from the station as they came around the nearest planet again, sun flare and pinpoint stars mixed. There weren't half so many people as Mahit had expected, and almost none of them were guards or police. She didn't see a single sunlit with their, cold, their closed gold faceplates, even though they would have gone out ever so well with the decor. Only a few expressionless men and women with pale grey armbands, and leanly muscled and armed with shock sticks, who looked as if they were quite dangerous, or might be, if challenged. No projectile weapons in Texcalan, even in the palace. Some of spacer culture ultimately spread down to the most civilized places. She avoided any door the people with the shock sticks guarded and let herself wander otherwise unimpeded, guided by only where she wasn't allowed to go. She was more sober by the time she found the garden, not dizzy or faintly ill, only buzzed, shimmering, strange. And she was glad of that, both the lack of true drunkenness and the lack of total sobriety, when she realized what sort of garden it was that she had stumbled into, a tiny carved out heart in the middle of this place. It was a room more than a garden, shaped like an enclosed bottle, a funnel that opened onto the night sky. The humid wind of the city slipped down it and was gentle as it went. The air was thick with moisture that dragged at Mahit's lungs and fed the plants that climbed three quarters of the way up the garden's walls. Deepest green and pale perfect new green and a thousand, thousand red flowers on vines. And sipping at those flowers, tiny birds with long beaks hardly longer than Mahit's thumb that floated and dived like insects would. The beat of their wings was a hum. The entire garden sang with it. She took two steps into the garden her feet soundless on the moss that covered the floor and held up her hand wonderingly. One of the tiny birds alighted on it, balanced on her fingertip and took off again. She couldn't even feel its weight. It had been like a ghost. It might not even have landed. A place like this couldn't exist on the station. It couldn't exist on most planets. Even as she walked further into the strange, dim sanctuary of it, she peered upward, trying to understand how the birds didn't fly up the funnel and escape into the vaulted, Texcalanli sky. It was surely warm enough out there for them, though not nearly as sweet. Not so many red flowers all at once. Perhaps succor was enough to keep a whole population trapped, willingly. Succor and the fine mesh of a net. When she tilted her head to exactly the right angle, she could see it, strung silvery and near invisible at the funnel's mouth. Why are you here? Someone said. A high voice, thin, easy with command. Mahit stopped looking up. It was the 90% clone. Eight antidote, the spitting image of the Emperor's six directions he had been at age 10. The child's long dark hair had come unbound and hung past his shoulders, but otherwise he remained as impeccable as he'd been when he'd stood beside his progenitor while Mahid offered up her wrists. He was not tall. He was not going to be tall, unless the 10% of his genetics that hadn't been spun from the Emperor's was full of a whole lot of genetic markers for height. What he was, was comfortable here in this strange room of trapped and beautiful birds, and looking like Mahit like she was an inconvenient piece of space debris that had to be avoided while inscribing an orbit. You're the new ambassador from the cell station. Why are you here and not at the party? For a child of ten, he was distressingly direct. Mahit thought of two cartograph, five agates little sun map with his orbital mechanics at age six. Children learned what they were expected to know. She had... At ten on Salle, she'd known how to patch a whole breach, how to calculate an incoming ship's trajectory, where her nearest escape pods were, and how to use them in an emergency. She'd known, too, how to write her own name and take Skilani glyphs, to recite a few poems, how to lie awake in her tiny safe pod of a room and dream of being a poet like Nine Orchid, have adventures on faraway planets. She wondered what this child dreamed of. My lord, she said to him, I wanted to see more of the palace. Forgive me if I have intruded. The ambassadors from the cell are curious, said Aid Antidote, like it was the opening line of an epigram. I suppose we are. Is this, do you come here often? All of the little birds are very beautiful. The Huitzhuitlen, is that what they're called? The ones here are called that. Out where they come from, they have a different name, but these are palace hummers. The cell doesn't have birds. "'No,' said Mahit slowly. "'This child had known Yskander, "'and Yskander had filled his mind with some vision "'of what the cell station was like. "'We don't. We don't have many animals at all.' "'I'd like to see a place like that,' Aidan Antedet said. "'She was missing some vital piece of information. "'She was certain she was never supposed to have encountered this child, "'not alone, not informally. "'You could,' she said. "'You're a very powerful young person.' And if you still want to, when you are of age, the cell station would be honoured to host you. When Eight entered at laughed. he did not sound ten years old. He sounded fay and bitter and smart, and Mahit wanted something, some emotion she couldn't place. A vestige of maternal instinct, a desire to hold this kid who knew birds and who had been left alone in the palace without friend or a minder. There was certainly a minder somewhere, perhaps the city itself. Its perfect algorithm was watching them both. "'Maybe I'll ask,' he said. "'I could ask.' "'You could,' Mahit said again. Eight Antidote shrugged. "'Did you know,' he said, "'if you dip your fingers in the flowers, "'the sweet, slim will drink the nectar right off your hand. "'They have very long tongues. "'They don't even have to touch you to do it.' "'I didn't,' Mahit said. "'You should leave,' Eight Antidote said.' You're not at all where you're supposed to be. She nodded. I suppose I'm not, she said. Good night, my lord. Turning her back on him felt dangerous, even if he was ten. Perhaps because he was ten, and so used to having people turn their backs on him that it was a thing that he could order. Mahit thought about that all the way down the hall, retreating away from the garden and its inhabitants. They don't even have to touch you to do it. from there. (laughs) Thank you so much.
0: You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB bar. I'm Rajan Khanna. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.